This is Daniel Steinberg, and you're listening to The Magid Method, a new podcast about drushos. Today we're joined by Rabbi Zev Elef, rabbi, president at Gratz College, author, and academic. Enjoy. And when I went back to look for maybe articles and essays and things uh, about drushos, uh, your, your article that you wrote for the Jewish Action came up a long time ago. Um, which was, uh, unbeknownst to me, it was, it was a decade ago. But I, I thought it might be enjoyable, uh, at least for me, I, I hope you, you, you'll get something out of it, to revisit that article uh, as kind of like a, you know, a time capsule and, and see where we are today. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a cover story. It was fall 2013. Um, yeah, so I, I, I found it in, uh, in hindsight, uh, you know, going backwards. And so I didn't, I didn't have a chance to see it you know, when it came out. And, and I wanted to understand uh, what inspired you to write it? Uh, what was your your uh, uh, connection to the subject? Good question. So uh, that article that appeared in Jewish Action in fall 2013, the decline of the rabbinic sermon, as I recall it, was motivated by the personal and the, the, personal and the professional. Uh, personally, I had just given up on, a, uh, on an early career in the rabbinate, uh, I was the William Fishman rabbinic intern at the Jewish Center a few years prior. I say give up. I was really, I think, born to be an academic, to be a writer and a scholar. So it's tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, how, and, long, how long were you the rabbi there? Or the oh, I was the intern? rabbinic intern. Just one year. Just yeah. one year. Uh-huh. And that was enough. Time. Um, I was mentored by Rabbi Yossi Levine, who was the senior rabbi there. It was a really wonderful experience. So wonderful. It convinced me. Uh, that I ought to be a scholar and <laughs> a historian. So, uh, but but in that experience, uh, I had come in contact more deeply with Rabbi Norman Lamb, who, of course, was for many years the rabbi at the Jewish Center, the president of Yeshiva University, passed away sadly yeah. uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I had known him, and but this was a different relationship. Uh, where I was not his rabbi by any stretch, but he had attended a number of my shiurim, my lectures at the Jewish Center. And just around that time, his sermons, <clears throat> his sermons were uh, published online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and first through Yeshiva University and then through uh, a foundation, uh, an effort uh, from the family, the uh, Lamb Heritage. Um, and... Is that the uh, note Ledeau wrote? Is that the well? So Stu Halpern, uh, a, a dear friend of mine, um, he edited those volumes, and they were derived from those collection of sermons. But the uh, online is a much larger trove reservoir of Rabbi Lamb's sermonic wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the marquee. Uh, items in that collection was a lecture he gave uh, notes of a repentant of a non-repentant I believe, Darshan and uh, Rabbi Lamb explaining how the the fall of the style of the sermon, he wrote that in, in the 1980s mm-hmm. um, you combine that with so you had on the one hand personally, uh, I had interacted with Rabbi Lamb, this archive had just been digitized 
along with Rabbi Lamb's musings on the state of the rabbinic sermon, particularly in the Orthodox world in the 1980s. And professionally, uh, I was at Brandeis as a doctoral candidate studying with uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarna. And there had been a spate of articles, growing literature on the history of the rabbinic sermon. Uh, Blondheim had written an article on Rabbi Jacob Joseph, Yaakov Yosef, um, Kimmy Kaplan, uh, a great historian, both in Israel, mm-hmm. had uh, likewise published on Rabbi Jacob Joseph, the so-called chief rabbi of New York, and how his sermon uh, delivered on the Lower East Side, who Abe Kahan, for instance, who was the longtime editor of the Forvert, the Yiddish Daily Forvert, yeah. um, he actually uh, covered the sermon. Everybody was anticipating to be blown away by the so-called Magid of Vilna, somebody whose great um, currency, so to speak, why he became chief rabbi was because he was a great darshan. He was a great uh, sermonizer. He absolutely fell flat. He spoke with an accent. Um, He didn't understand the attitude, the rise and falls, the expectations of the rabbinic sermon. And he put it together with sort of the professional obligation to know as much as I can about my field, American Jewish history. And personally, it um, it created a a curious small research project. Yeah. Um, And I have a particularly strong pain point to read rabbinic sermons and sermon manuals. So I guess that's the strength of my part. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I think there's a few of us Russian nerds out there and, uh, clear, clearly, uh, we're, we're, we're two of them. Um, so I, uh, you know, I, I, I was excited to read this and in the beginning, so you quote Jonathan Sarna, uh, and you say how, uh, that in the beginning, uh, he used to say that in the beginning, people used to come to synagogue in order to talk to God. And now they come to talk to their friends. And, uh, and, and that is, um, I'm wondering if that, if that has still, is still the same 10 years later, do you, uh, well, what's happened, I think what's transformed shul synagogue in general in our post pandemic world, um, is people's tolerance and their interests in attending shul and going to synagogue. And what I point out in that article as I recall it, is the movement from sermon to Devar Torah. From Drusha to, I want to share some words of Torah with you. Uh, a Devar Torah centers on much more about content than style. It centers sure. on text study, perhaps. Um, a sermon is organized in a certain way, whether it begins with a joke, um, whether it has um, wisdom drawn from uh the newspaper or literature of some kind, but there's an alchemy that goes on very intentional chemistry of how to build a sermon. The Devar Torah, not again, it's a different genre. It's not one is not either better than the other, Uh, but it looks different in presentation. And Rabbi Lamb already in that article in the 1980s had Moaned the fall of style of the rabbinic sermon. What we've seen is um, even less time provided for the rabbi to deliver that sermon, that dresser, that bartar, whatever they call it. Yeah. Um, 
and people are looking differently. There's also, I think, an important difference is that in a very real way, particularly in the Orthodox Jewish world in the United States, the sermon, the people in the pews to learn Torah for between 10 and 25 minutes per week. Uh, they didn't have access, they didn't have literacy, they didn't have the tools to yeah. access Jewish texts. And what's happened since then, and this is happily, um, as more and more attend day school, um, they study in college, gap year in yeshiva or seminary, this is particularly the Orthodox world, of course. Um, but then again, engaged, particularly Jews in the conservative world too, I think there's it, it holds muster is that they no longer need the sermon as that once-a-week moment to engage in Torah study. You have online outlets, you have social media. Um, and so what the expectation of, oh, I have to be here, I have to learn, uh, whether implicit, it might be intuitive, they might not be saying so explicitly. But that's a real, that's a very real thing. And so the outcome, our intentions are for the sermon, both on either side of the pulpit, have become different than they once were. Yeah, I, I tend to, to take the side that uh, there's a great quote. I, I love this quote from Jerry Seinfeld, uh, the comedian. And he said that uh, he said the real the real issue with a, with a comedian is that they have to justify why they're the only one speaking while an entire room of people sit quietly listening. And, you know, if it's just about the Devar Torah, I, I believe it's, you know, it's like you're saying that people don't really need the rabbi for the Devar Torah anymore. You know, they, they, almost anything that, that the rabbi is going to say, they can find online in some form or another. So, so to justify keeping a room full of people quiet, uh, you know, for 10, 15 minutes uh, on a Shabbos morning, uh, while you tell them something that they could read on a blog post, uh, I think is really, uh, uh, I don't know, I, I mean, it, it misses the mark. Um, and it, it, in my mind, it really is a, um, it, it's, it shows a, a lack of a regard for, uh, for the responsibility of that speaking slot. I think that that speaking slot is, uh, like you said, it has evolved uh, beyond just the information. Um, and, and what I'd like to ask you is what, what do you, what do you think it is now? If it's not about the information, what, what is the point of the drasha? What is the point? Of I think it's, um, that's, what's complicated. It's different things for different people for many it is still that one moment per week in a very busy life where people have a chance to study torah um hence the movement from sermon to devar torah um for others it's a source of inspiration uh for the rabbi it may be an opportunity to engage with a larger audience uh you know your comment is very apt it's the prime time occasion um to engage with a congregation um I think many times it's a moment to see how Torah interacts with the real world. Um, how can we make meaning? At the end of the day, all religious experiences, I feel, are about meaning making. Um, mm -hmm. How we um, make meaning in our lives you know, uh, is, is what religion is all about. And the sermon, one way or another, is, is meant to accomplish that in some way. Right. 
Do you, what was your upbringing uh, like in terms of uh, your, the sermons that you used to hear from your uh, rabbi in, in the shul that you grew up in, or shuls? Uh, what, what was your recollection uh, as, a, as a youngster? Um, that's a good question. I grew up, I was born in uh, where I am now, actually. Now, I, I was born in Lower Marion, and now uh, my family has returned to Lower Marion, where I am in mm-hmm. Graff College. Um, but I grew up principally in uh, in Baltimore, in Baltimore County, the Pikesville area. Um, first, uh, well, even before that, as Shomer Luna with uh, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb. Uh, and then as a little boy, we moved uh, across town to what was called Suburban. Yeah. Uh, so we're an Orthodox and Rabbi Irvin Price was the rabbi, um, really a wonderful, both wonderful people, uh, still close to Rabbi Weinreb. Um, Irvin Price was so wonderful. So, uh, was, was, I believe British. So we had a particular uh, authority with his accent. Uh-huh. Um, I confess that I was a youth minion kid and, uh, and what spirited away to the upstairs minion where we had Dunkin' Donuts uh, for Kiddush. Um, <laughs> and, um, but um, when we were there, my father dutifully uh, had me stay in. Um, rabbi Price was an old school YU, Yeshiva University Roots uh, ordained rabbi. And so that meant that he was trained by uh, Rabbi Luckstein, probably Rabbi Joseph Luckstein. Uh, his successor, of course, was the son, Rabbi Haskell Luckstein. In, yeah. uh, the, uh, in the sermonics, the homiletics department of yeshiva, um, which meant that uh, your your sermon was built in a certain structure. Um, it, it was you first made relevance by opening it up uh, by problematizing the moment, either with a quote from the New York Times or something else. Yeah. Uh, then you sought insight uh, from Jewish text, usually the uh, weekly Torah portion, the Parshat Hashavuah. Uh, and then you brought it together. That was basically how a sermon was structured. Um, yeah, and I think that goes with all um, all movements uh, looked in, in some way, whether you were trained in the seminary by Kaplan uh, or someone else. The idea, again, the sermon has making meaning, being wider, um, was really important to those rabbis. Mm-hmm. The uh, at the beginning of the article, you talk about you. Well, you 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 lay the blame at the feet of the uh, the Orthodox sermon for uh, uh, a decline, a, a lack of style and substance. Um, and uh, what do you what do you mean by that? I mean, I, I think I know what you mean, but I'd love to hear what you say. Yeah, you know, synagogue as theater, synagogue as experience is really important. Um, you want. Uh, couldn't have been that scathing just because the early you would never have published it if it was so mean spirited. But uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, the well, uh, I'll, I'll read you what it says. It says, uh, uh, and you wrote it, I guess, unless they edited it. But it does say that uh, in the beginning, uh, you say that um, uh, both in style and substance, the contemporary Orthodox sermon has lost meaningfulness. How much meaning is open to debate, but its overall decline is apparent. Uh, it remains as a Shabbat morning uh-huh. institution. Not because it's a halachic necessity, but because it has grown into an expectation. So that. Oh, is, wow. So yeah. thanks for reminding me. Wow, I had guts. You're an angry, um, you're an angry young man. <laughs> so, like Billy Joel's song says. Um, so, what? So, I'll, I'll still stick to that, which is, and, and that's, I mean, we know this, and I, I hope 
it doesn't offend is that the rabbinic sermon was drawn from German Protestant culture. Um, it's true that there was always a drusha sermon delivered in the intermediate week between the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and then the weekend, the Shabbat preceding uh, Passover, Pesach. But other than that, the sermon was born in the United States uh, in the 1830s by Rabbi, necessarily an ordained Rabbi, Isaac Leeser in Philadelphia. Um, and in German, uh, and then eventually in Eastern European enclaves as well. Um, there is no halachic requirement for there to be a sermon. Right. Uh, that's apparent. Um, it became an expectation and a happy one. A happy one as Jews became much more desirous of engaging with Torah and engaging with text. Uh, they uh, appropriately uh, tapped their rabbinic leadership to supply that. Um, but it doesn't mean we have to have that. Right. I, I'm never, in my own, to just put my cards on the table, uh, I, I'm never in favor of doing something just because that's how we always did it. Sure. That's how you become stale. You always need a process of assessment and review. And uh, the sermon should not be an imposition. Uh, in, in certain circles, like uh, people joke that the Hashkama minion, it wasn't so, but the Hashkama minion's early uh, services on Shabbat morning are meant to provide people an escape from the rabbinic sermon. And lo and behold, now it, it's very often some of these larger synagogues where there are four, five, six minyanim services that the rabbi will travel. He'll start in the, the uh, Hashkama minion he'll, uh, and then he'll jump around so he makes sure that he's present in uh, every space, every prayer space on that Shabbat morning, much to the chagrin sometimes of the congregants. Yeah. Um, the sermon ought not to be that. It should be um, filled with meaning. And uh, one way to ensure that is by the choreography. Uh, I don't mean where the rabbi is placing themselves on the pulpit, but rather what is the organization of the sermon? What are the intentions? Um, what is the style? What is the flair? What is the, the highs and lows of the intonation? Uh, it's, a, it's a lost art. And yeah. I guess I have my lamb to rely on in uh, mourning it. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about, it's interesting. You talk about at the beginning of the century. So uh, the, the sermons, the, the cantoral performances, they, they were there uh, seemingly almost for entertainment value um, to, to provide people with a, with a, a theater experience, like, like you described. Um and uh, and I, I love this quote. There was uh, someone who said that uh, that they felt more like uh, he said uh, I, he compared his role. Uh, one preacher said that he compared his role to a clown dancing on a rope. And another rabbi agreed, characterizing his role not simply as an entertainer, but a comedian. So uh, I, I think that's interesting that, that that they understood that, that there was there was an expectation that that you would you would be engaging. That, that, that weren't there necessarily to impart information as much as as it, it was it was really almost the opposite extreme. They were there so to remember as uh, as Kimmy Kaplan and Menachem Blondheim have uh, taught us is that the cantors, the chazanim, were paid sometimes five times as much as the rabbi. 
yeah. uh, back in the early 20th century. So yeah. synagogues entertainment as theater was critically important. And uh, um, the scholar rabbi who fancied himself this authority when really he was part the perception of the, of the congregation was part of the symphony was part of just the, uh, the theater. Right. He wasn't the doctor. He was Saturday morning part of the orchestra. It was a different expectation. You know, uh, I found a, a bar mitzvah invitation from my uncle from the 1950s uh, at a shul in the Bronx. And I forget the name of the shul, but Richard Tucker uh, was the uh, the cantor there, the chazan there, and uh, what happened was is that he was he was so popular, uh, he I guess he procured an agent and he got hired away to to into the entertainment world to sing opera, and his agent was able to break the contract with the shul somehow by uh, there was some negotiation, but uh, that that's what it, it turned into a performance, and you can kind of almost understand that where that world where like Jackie Mason was a rabbi and you know transitioned from rabbi to from there he said more people were coming to hear the jokes than they were wow, i mean look at the very first uh i believe the very first uh film with uh sound was al jolson's the jazz singer which is right. all about the transition from the cantorate uh to uh jazz the jazz right, right. exactly so so then it seems like from, from the progression of progression of the article you talk about how uh Starting in the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, and into the 60s, where Rabbi Lukstein uh, kind of rejuvenated the movement uh, and uh, imparted a lot more sophistication into it, um, and um, and I guess Rabbi Rabbi Lamb was born out of that that era. He was a student of Rabbi Joseph Lukstein. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and so and then it's he was his assistant rabbi, actually, I believe, at the at KJ. At, at the Jewish Center, at, at KJ, Rabbi Lux, the Luxteins uh, have been the rabbis of uh, KJ, okay, on Jay. the east side. Yeah, got it. Um, and and it seems like at some point, uh, then in the sixties, you, you talk about how it turned the, the the sermon slot turned into kind of a platform for uh, speaking about Israel politics, uh, things like that, and that was the expectation that that it you know, Israel and America, you know, America's stance on Israel and, and that type of uh, uh, dialogue is what took place during during the sermon slot. Is that well, when one takes a look at some of these sermon manuals, uh, whether in all in all of the religious movements, for that matter. Um, but if you take a look at some of the collected sermon manuals, yeah, they speak to the politics of the moment, whether so it be during, to, uh, so the jury to agitate for day school education, um, summer camps, uh, Sabbath observance, whatever it is. And there's no question that if one were to take a look, if you were to survey what's available of the Jewish press since certainly 1967, the yeah. dominant agenda has been Zionism and support for Israel. Yeah. Um, and so that will always, um, putting them, uh, well, yeah, leave it that. Yeah. What is your, uh, and then, and then I guess where, where we ended up at the end of the article was that it, it turned into the Devar Torah, you know, where, where people become, became much more educated and, uh, the, 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 the rabbis, uh, I, I think there, there's a quote in here from you that you talk about how, um, there's, it became, 
uh, let me see this quote. It says, many of today's rabbis, as a result, offer up sermons that too often feature more Eastern European folklore than Torah. Um, oh, yeah. that, that our pulpit rabbis champion so-called Jewish values or Shabbat observance is admirable, but hardly inspirational. Yeah. Well, yeah well, now, uh, now I understand. I never understood why I got this, that, that, that article won the Rockauer Award for Excellence in a single commentary by the American Jewish Press. Not reporting, but uh -huh. commentary. So apparently I had a lot of commenting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to hear you kind of unpack that a little bit. What do you mean by Eastern Euro European folklore? So I will say, and I won't, I, mean, I don't mean to throw anybody under the bus, but... Who can you take a stand? In... In rabbinic circles, there are shared bibliographies of which art scroll book to thumb through and which stories are good fodder for a sermon, jokes and the like. Uh, I've heard the same joke told them any number of times uh, as part of from the pulpit. Um, the idea that rabbis are collecting stories about whether it be Rabbi Yisrael Meir, HaKohen Kagan, the Chavetz Chaim, mm -hmm. there are more stories about the Chavetz Chaim than days that he lived. They can't all be true. <laughs> and it's not a matter if it's true or not. Yeah. Um, but the need to lean on these stories um, has been um, interesting. You know, I don't think I don't think I'm at where I was. 10 years ago in thinking about this now, uh, you know, maybe just a little bit older. Um, yeah. I get people more pass and let, you know, let you be you perhaps, but I don't, when the content shifts from the substance of Torah study to the story, when the rabbinic sermon and I, I've heard it has been 99% story in not study or meaning making, although you can make meaning of stories. You can write books about stories. Um, I think something misses the point. Yeah. So, what I what what I what made me send you a message and and say I'd love to talk to you is this last line where you wrote um, long ago these. Uh, nonetheless, it's difficult to deny the parallels between the American Orthodox sermons delivered today and a century ago. Long ago, those men begrudgingly accepted their roles as entertainers and comedians. Our generations desire something more. We require leaders. And that was such a powerful ending to, to, your, uh, to, to, to your article that I just I, I wanted to, to talk about that for a moment because from the, when i guess the the, the sermon as even as as Devar Torah, even if we were able to move beyond the the fluff and and the stories and and the uh, the, the padding of, of kind of light content like you know light on substance um and 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 we're able to to impart information uh it's still in my mind at least it, do, it doesn't connote leadership it, do, it doesn't indicate leadership and what I'd love to hear from you is is what what do you mean by that? What do you mean that that the 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 generation desires something where we re, we require leaders? How does the sermon? Um, well, so I think I, I think I understand. 
So if a sermon is meant to fulfill the obligation of delivering a sermon and the content, the substance of it is a rabbinic adage or tale and doesn't connect to the moment, it doesn't connect to the vicissitudes of Torah study, that's a problem. Um, and in that moment, I suppose, and I still feel, I, I think, that uh, we need rabbinic leadership. Uh, we don't need somebody to fill 15 minutes at 10.30 in the morning on a Saturday. Uh, it's an opportunity to, uh, There, it is still the case that, as you point out, that the sermon is a prime time event, but not usually delivered in prime time, but it is a prime time event. Yeah. Uh, and prime don't time that really just means you, you, you have an audience. You, ha you have that. Okay, right. And don't, because you have an audience, don't lose the moment. Don't just fulfill your obligation. Use it. Yeah, so I guess I still feel that way. Yeah, yeah, and that that really resonated with me because that's uh, that that's something that's uh, uh, it it just it, it makes sense. It just really makes sense. You, you don't need no one needs you to speak. <laughs> you know, we don't need that. We don't need your for your for your information. Um, right. But I think that a lot of people are. Uh, a lot of uh, so-called leaders, uh, at least in maybe their younger years, are reluctant to do that, to, to, to stand behind and assert themselves and stand behind their message. Uh, and they do what I like to call is, is hide and speak, hide and speak. They, they, uh, they'll, they'll uh, give a very uh, sophisticated Debar Torah, build this, this towering infrastructure of Torah, and then distribute all the weight of the sermon onto that. And at the very, very last moment, at the end of the Devar Torah, they'll kind of take a step back and say, you know, in, you know, in closing, we should all strive to be like Moshe Rabbeinu or something like that, you know, Gishabas. And, and, and you know, you, you really, you didn't assert yourself. You, you, you put the Torah out there and you hid behind it. And uh, but, but, but what I advocate for, at least in, in my method of, of sermon uh, method, methodology, is is a message first type of, of sermon where the rabbi slash leader should have a message in mind that that he wants his congregation to hear whatever that message might be whatever spiritual growth he has in mind for the community uh wherever whatever he wants to tell them and he builds the torah around that so and, and that that takes it, it, it you have to be willing to assert yourself and, and put yourself out there on the line and to, to um you know, there, there are people that might not agree with it and might call you to task on it and, and argue with on, with you on it. But but the message is is, is really the sermon and, and the Torah bolsters the message. But it's not you're not hiding behind the hiding behind the Torah. Sounds on point. Yeah. Um, what what's your your ideal sermon? What if you had a choice? What would you love to hear? You know, what would what would be a perfect sermon for you to, to sit in? And, and ha have you heard them? Uh, recently, I heard of my yeah. You know, it, it'll it's cliche and it's something you can anticipate. Uh, I remember in Chicago, feels a long time ago, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs came to visit, and he delivered a sermon without any notes. He did this thing where he placed his elbow on the lectern, the stender. Mm -hmm. and he, and opened up his arms and he said, my friends. And he invited us all into his thinking. Now, I tried that as a scholar in residence a few months later. It did not work as well. <laughs> um, 
but there was something really majestic and charismatic. He felt like he was talking directly to you. There was Torah. There was an urgent message. There was a, there was inspiration. You felt better and you felt tasked with something mm-hmm. afterward. Um, other people, I, I don't want to start naming other names so that I'll leave some other colleagues out. Um, but, but that's the type of thing. I want to feel like that person's talking to me, help telling me that I've got to, I've got to be better. We all have to be better, right? Every day we try to be better. We try to improve what we're doing professionally, the organizations, the businesses, the families that we're a part of. Um, we all stand to get better. So sermon should be an intervention to move us in that direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you, when you, your brief stint as rabbinic intern, uh, what was your style? What was my style? Uh, to hang on for dear life. I remember. <laughs> I, I remember uh, when I finally got a chance to deliver the sermon at the Jewish Center. Um, I had my uh, sermon stapled. It's stapled together. So I had to flip through it. And oh, my goodness. Uh, that's not what you do. Everybody knows you just slide the papers to the side as you finish them. So it's elegant. So nobody knows. Somebody sees material that you're using oh boy was that an experience oh <laughs> wow um what is my style um no i still just uh last week i was in baltimore live at skyland residence um um personally what works for me is to have a couple of sentences i want to have absolutely discreetly clear um otherwise an outline i feel that personally I succeed much better uh, in an extemporary format with guiding bullets to move me along with texts to guide me to make sure that I'm on course. Mm-hmm. Um, other people read very nice. Uh, I in people that I went to yeshiva with, um, they spent hours refining and almost memorizing a drasha sermon uh, before they ascend the pulpit on a Shabbat morning. That's incredible. Uh, that's uh, that's it could be a great use of one's time. Uh, everybody's got to do it. Yeah. What What are your thoughts on? Uh, I, I know there's a lot of uh, debate about Shabbos Shuvah drushes. Some people love the pill pull and the uh, you know the 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 nuances and in, in the Rambam and Hilchos Chuva, and then other people you know go for the jugular in terms of fire and brimstone. Or, or even trying to lift people up, but less on the content as much as the the uh, much less on the information as uh, more more on the transformation. What what are your thoughts? Interesting. Um, well, I think generally, because uh, you know I have friends who ask me uh, for guidance sometimes just to read materials or content and the like. Um, I think that there is much more of a of an attempt to find texts that that inspire. Um, you asked me about Shabbat Shuvah, but uh, for example, I'm thinking about Shabbos Haggadol mm-hmm. right before Passover or Pesach. Yeah. Um, less about the new the technical nuances about how to observe pa- of Pesach, but more about the uplift. Uh, a lot more on Seder night and Magid and uh, the obligation to pass on traditions to multiple generations. Much more than. Uh, baking matzah or uh, what is and is not chametz, leavened bread. Um, and I think the same thing holds true with Shabbat Shuvah. Um, 
less fire and brimstone, less halachic, although it's not really a halachic sermon historically. Much more about how do we improve, how do we make this? Um, maybe the Shabbat Shuvah is the last vestige of the rabbinic sermon, particularly in Orthodox circles. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, just one or two last questions. Uh, in terms of rabbis who who share personal details about themselves in order to to connect with the congregation to lift them up, um, how, how do you feel about that? I mean, there, there's there's also different schools of thought. There's the the formal rabbi that uh, kind of buttoned up and you know maybe maybe he, he's 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 a he's a he's a more of a uh, a figure of of leadership and flawlessness, and then there's the, the leader from from the trenches who's you know there struggling just to you know with you beside beside you and and uh, saying you know follow me you know this is what's worked for me and this is what I'm, let's work work on this together. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I do not personally care for. Um, I do not like it when the rabbi makes the sermon provides the full window as if the, the congregation is living their Judaism vicariously through the rabbi. Can you give me an stand right there. Yeah. Give me, give me an example. Give me an example. When the rabbi says, I was at a delegation last week and this is what I want to report back to you. Oh, um, I think that's probably a little too egocentric. Right. Um, right. I've seen that. If, so here, here's a glimpse into the window of my rabbinic world. Of my day. Yeah. But don't get me wrong, right? Uh, some of the greatest Broadway shows are like the producers. Some of the greatest television shows are about television. Dirty Rock. Self, some, self uh, uh, so we all write about what we know. Uh, but at so there always is going to be an element of that. But we have to be careful that the congregation's Judaism doesn't become the rabbi's weekday that i think um is always and it, again it's a professional hazard in any industry the rabbin is no exception mm -hmm. and in terms of the per personal parts of their lives in terms of things that I'll, I'll give you an example i was i was listening to a uh there's there was a great podcast I'll, I'll forward it to you about uh it was um by the hartstein institute about the art of the sermon and it was right before the high holidays and they interviewed david wolpe who is the conservative rabbi? Yeah, in China. yeah. and so he talks about. Uh, well, I, I mean, I've never actually heard any of his sermons, but but uh, but Yoshua um, Kurtzer, who was who was uh, Kurtzer, I think Kurtzman, Kurtzer was was interviewing him and said that uh, you know you've talked to your congregation about your divorce, about your illness, you know, different things through the years, through twenty five years in the pulpit, and uh, and they grow to know each other as a result. Uh, which is, you know, how any relationship is formed by by revealing parts of yourself and trusting that the other party will uh, reciprocate and, and not exploit it. And um, but um, but what, I, I'm curious about your thoughts about that in terms of turning that that speaking platform into uh, kind of a glimpse into the into the, the personal Judaism, the personal, not necessarily the professional, but the the personal aspect of of the Jew of of the leader, Jew, Jewish leader. Oh. I think uh, making oneself vulnerable and personal and humanizing our experiences are um, are are wonderful. Are very courageous. Uh, it, it shows. Uh, I think it, it shows a level of humility and 
um, makes it personal. So it comes at risk, going to overshare. Uh, but yeah, certainly. Right, right. And there, there are other schools of thought that would say that you know you can't show any flaws. That you're you're the leader, and that you need to. Uh, you know, show show the ideal, even if your life might not necessarily be the ideal, but but to project an aura of of uh, of, of 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 the ideal. Yeah, I think there's still that one, one has to protect the office, so to speak. Yeah, um, and I think that's a very real thing. Um, so there's a tension there that one needs to negotiate in the pulpit. Great. All right. And the last question I want to ask you is, is in terms of uh, 21st century attention spans, uh, how you believe those should be managed? Because, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I have a, a 17, 18 year old kid who will sit on TikTok and he'll just he'll scroll six second video after six second video for, for hours and hours and hours and hours. And his attention span is shot. I mean, <laughs> Uh, and, and this is the new yeah. generation. This is the generation, you know, in, in five, 10 years, you know, he'll, he'll be in the audience, you know, listening to the rabbi sermon in, in a shul. And, and uh, h- how, do you, how do you compete? How do you keep people awake? How do you keep people engaged? How do you keep people invested without being that clown dancing on the rope that you described earlier? Yeah. Um, w- w- what are your thoughts about that? Because, well, I think that in liberal circles, places like Park Avenue and Central Synagogue have embraced and become uh, essentially invested in film companies to uh, um, reach a broader audience uh, on a, a, a sort of a show without borders. Yeah, multimedia. Um, um, so certainly that's the case. Um, it's tough. It's tough. Um, some rabbis will bring in props to hold people's attention. Um, I don't mean props like talking to you. I mean, quite literally, that if uh, they'll bring in the book that they're quoting so they can pick it up. Uh, um, they'll, they'll have other things just to um, carry some attention. I think it's a very real thing. Uh, it, it has the same issue in the classroom, same issue uh, in, in camp settings. Right, right. Well, well, the, the thing with classrooms and, and campsites is, I guess it's it's a bit in, informal. There, you can engage in conversation, and and you can you know you, you can have correct participation. Oh, this, this is this is a monologue for the most part. This is, that's absolutely that's absolutely absolutely. So, what would you know? At what expense? You know, there's obviously Torah to impart. There's obviously attention to be. Uh, uh, sustained, uh, you know, that, that, that balance I think is, is, is the new challenge of, of this century. Um, and I just, you know, to, to me, it's, it's, there, there's, there's not going to be a lot of people that are, are natural born, uh, engagers, you know, with, with the, this attention span really just requires some, some new skills that I think people personally, I, I, they're, they're not natural skills. I think they, they need to be learned. Uh, unless you're an entertainer, I guess. Um, but uh, but I, I'm I'm curious how how people will manage to pu- to pull that off without uh, swinging to one end of the spectrum where they just become you know joke after joke after joke after joke after joke and just a little bit of Torah versus the other end of the spectrum where you have all the Torah and just you know it's very dry and then just sprinkle a little bit you know of, of seasoning in order to make it palatable. There's got to be. There's going to emerge some some new type of speakers, and I, I'm curious if do you know any of, of do you, 
we don't have Rabbi Sachs with us anymore and we don't have Rabbi Lamb and we don't have, but who have you yeah. recognized any of these new types of speakers? I want to meet them. <laughs> uh, That'll be the, anyways, I, I've taken up a lot of your time and, and you've been amazing. I think this is fantastic. Yeah, this has been so enjoyable. Indulgent, I, I could say. You've been listening to The Magid Method, and I'm Daniel Steinberg. Learn more about The Magid Method at M-A-G-G-I-D-M-E-T-H-O-D.com, magidmethod.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.